Well, welcome again, um, everyone. It is great to see you again, and it's wonderful as ever to, to, to be uh, coming back to the Bible and to 1 Peter. And as we will always do, we will start um, exactly where we left off the week before. And as we dip again into this letter, uh, written, um, if you remember, to a group of dispersed Christians all over the area of modern-day Turkey, that's our situation. They are separated from each other as they try to live for God in an alien world. Encouraged in this letter to, if you remember, stand firm in the grace of God and to not buckle, to not give in to the world. So this morning, uh, we come to the first clear instruction of the whole letter. And what an instruction it is. The first clear instruction that Peter wants to get across to us as he starts to unravel what it means to stand firm in the grace of God is simply profoundly and weightily to be holy. Be holy in all your conduct. Be holy because God is holy. And I think, and this might be true for some of us here who aren't Christians this morning, or those of you who aren't Christians and you're maybe watching online with us this morning, you might think that the charge to be holy is very much one of those things in which you in fact expect the minister to say. You expect the Bible to be urging us to, to be holy. I reckon if you asked any punter on the street outside, what does the Bible say? A lot of them wouldn't know how to answer that. But a lot of people who would give a stab at answering it, I think the majority would say, oh, to, to, to be a holy person. It's, it's how we be holy people, to be good people, to learn how to be good people. That's what you'd expect, I think, the Bible to be urging you. But the reality is two things. One, that is so much easier said than done under the guidance of the Bible. And secondly, there is so much more involved in this instruction than simply just it being a law given to us to obey. And Peter knows that. And what is great about this passage is that Peter doesn't just bark out this instruction as a rule to keep in and of itself, but he beds it in the reasons that make being holy both possible and deeply worthwhile and desirable and attractive as we stand firm in the grace of God. So before we dive into looking at what it means to be holy, I just want to explain a little bit about how this passage works. And in doing so, I want to bring you into a little bit as to how we would prepare sermons for um, Sunday. I'm doing that partly because a number of you who are new to Redeemer have actually asked this question. How do you work through the Bible? Um, how do you approach the Bible and how do you preach through it? Well, here's a bit of an answer for you to, 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 to bring you in, if you like, on our prep to show you what Ian and I get up to when we're chatting about our sermon planning in our prep in our preparation for our speaking, therefore, God willing, in our preaching, our aim is always to follow the, the flow of thought throughout the passage. I hope you sort of pick that up as you've been with us over the course of the last uh, um, few weeks and months, and to go through the passage as the original author intended. <clears throat> in our case, that's the Apostle Peter to these dispersed, scattered Christians, these sort of pockets of Christians scattered all over uh, northern Turkey. Now, that seems uh, quite obvious, but what is important is that it stops me from saying anything uh, from the Bible, anything we like 
from Scripture. It's all based in what the, the, the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants us to know. Secondly, it also stops me from preaching a whole jumble of collection thoughts on just a lot of different Bible ideas, especially as we come to passages like the one we do this morning, because there are a lot of Bible ideas to be thought through and discussed and looked at. We could spend a lot of our time this morning on looking at what it means to be holy, and we'll do a bit of that. We could spend a lot of our time this morning looking at what it means to be ransomed, or or spending all our time on God as Father, or as Jesus as our Savior, or His blood, His resurrection, etc. And all that is wonderful. It's all in our passage this morning, and there's lots we can talk about, but we really want to get to the heart of what Peter wants his readers to know about all these things being put together in the order that he puts them in. We want to know what Peter wants his readers to know. We want to know what God wants us to know through Peter this morning. And I realize that might be a very obvious thing to say. I know a lot of you might know that, but it's really important. That is what we do. And we're going to see why that's important as we get to the end of our talk this morning. And to do that, we have to work through the flow of our passage and to understand the spirit-inspired logic behind it, how it all fits together for our good and for knowing Jesus. And when we do that, we are particularly helped by our linking words. Forgive me if this is a bit of a Bible study, but it's really good and it's very exciting when we begin to put these things together. Our linking words we have right at at the top of our passage, our very first word, therefore, that is supremely important for us, especially as we look at what we will today. We have a cause and effect word here. This draws this passage together with the preceding one. The word therefore always points back to something, doesn't it? It means in the light of everything that has been said so far, here's what I can now tell you correctly. And so this passage, this instruction to be holy as God is holy, is embedded in a much deeper and longer discussion all the way from verse 1 of chapter 1. In other words, says Peter, before we start anything, if you're going to understand this difficult and quite bold instruction to be holy, you have to have everything that I've said to you before in your minds about your imperishable inheritance that we looked at in depth last week, about you being exiles who are living in a suffering reality for a future glory already won for you through the death and resurrection of Jesus. You need to keep that in your minds because it feeds into this instruction to be holy. And as we see, not only are we to look back, but Peter wants us to draw us into looking forward, therefore points us to something new that needs to be said. In other words, there is now so much more to say, says Peter, on what living in the light of this future inheritance looks like. Therefore, in other words, 1 Peter doesn't finish at verse 12 of chapter 1. There is more. And the more is the call to be holy. And so as we move into this new topic of holiness, of being holy, like with the beginning of chapter 1 last week, Peter draws us again to remember what we have in the future, while also reminding us what he has done in the past. That is the logic of these verses. Um, um, Don't take my word for it. Have a look at that. Verse 13. Therefore, in the light of the inheritance that have stored up in heaven for you, that can never perish, spoil, or fade, one for you in the death of Jesus by the mercy of God, prepare your minds for action setting your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. So set your mind in the future 
Verses 14 to 17, knowing everything has already happened to you in the past. Verse 18, that you were ransomed from your previous futile ways through Christ, who God raised from the dead. You see? Be holy, knowing what you already have stored for you in the future while standing on everything that has been done for you in the past through Jesus. And unless we get that correct, unless we get that spirit-inspired, deliberately authored logic in place, these passages will become truly difficult for us. For if you take the instruction to be holy out of context, we have nothing more than moralism, and that is an impossible way to live. But if you want to see it in the right place within the passage, you have a gospel-transformed life that you will not only want to live, but you find that you can live. So let's begin then with the instruction to be holy itself. That's our first point of three, simply be holy, verses 13 to 17. Let's just read those together again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. As it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. There's the instruction to be holy. And to be holy, says Peter, is to be like God. That's what God himself says. To be holy as he is holy. And the root of the idea, as we said over the last two weeks, is to be different to be distinct from the context in which you find yourself, to be separated from the world. The word holy means to be set apart for special use, to be different for a very specific and particular purpose. Now, of course, God is different in various ways from everything else around him, isn't he? He is distinct as creator rather than created. He is distinct as morally pure, as against morally evil, or at best morally compromised and mixed. He is distinct as being true, as opposed to being a mixture of falsehood. He is distinct as being totally different to the mixed, muddied, and morally compromised world that we find ourselves, that, that, that he made perfect and that we ruined. He is only good. He is only true, whereas this world is totally the opposite of that. And so just as God is distinct from this mixed world, so his people similarly are to be distinct. They are to be holy. Just like last week with my example of the sanctified butter knife, the the, the holy butter knife, if you will. It is not to be sullied or made impure or dirtied by another substance. So it is with God's people as it is with God himself. Christians in their call to be holy must be distinct to the people around them. But not only that, you are also, says Peter, to be distinct from who you once were yourselves, says Peter. Verse 14, as obedient children do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance. You need to look different to how you used to look and think and act and behave in your pagan past. You are to be holy in every sense, distinct from the world around you, everything and everyone, even your own past selves. But as we've been looking at over the past few weeks, for for Christians living in the context in which Peter is writing, 
That is the one thing you almost certainly do not want to be. You will not want to be holy. And it's not so much that you don't want to be holy in the sense that you are tempted to selfishness and sin that, 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 that our lives are sort of succumbed to, that live in all our hearts. That is absolutely the reasons why we don't want to be holy. We, we prefer to sin. We prefer rebellion. That's how our hearts are sort of naturally inclined. We'd much rather live for ourselves and follow God. But, but there's so much more to it than that in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter's reading to exiles, 1 Peter's, Peter's readers may not want to be holy because these are Christians, remember, who are suffering for the gospel, suffering for being holy, suffering everyday, low-level, deep and painful persecution. They're not being killed, but they are being maligned and marginalised. Chapter 2, if you remember we looked at this last week, they are being spoken against as evildoers. We read of those in chapter 4 who think it's strange that you don't join in with their smutty jokes. And because the Christians won't conform, the Christians are maligned and slandered and marginalised. And these people don't want to be holy because they'd rather conform and fit in. We looked at that. That's how we feel. No one likes a nonconformist. No one likes the person who won't toe the party line. So there is enormous moral pressure for the person who wants to live the, the, the good life, the, the goody-two-shoes life, as we might have it launched at us, the holier-than-thou existence, as it might be said of us. And as such, there is every temptation to put your head down and go along with the crowd. And if you are going to be distinctly Christian, well, you're going to be distinctive in as quiet and as an unobtrusive way as possible. But Peter says in this passage, actually, that's not good enough. Peter is calling out for a different kind of life. Peter is talking here about sticking out, to be distinct, to be noticed, and therefore to receive the abuse and the slander that society will give you for living that way for God. That's really hard. So to hold the Christian views of marriage, well, it's difficult because marriage is difficult sometimes. And loving your husband and your wife through the difficult times, that takes real effort. But in our culture, it is even more difficult to live that because the culture's idea of marriage is so very, very different, so very, very weak. It's not as if we're even living in offices and neighborhoods that want to help us live in faithful marriages. Everything is aimed at us to, to not take it that seriously. Well, for those of you who, who aren't married, the same thing happens. Your view on sex only in a strict marriage relationship is mocked and ridiculed and people don't like you for being different, for, for showing them up and, and not joining in. That, that the pressure to conform is enormous. So much easier to give in rather than stick out and make a stand. Peter says, we want to be holy and distinct because the God who made us and called us is holy and distinct. He is different from the morally compromised world in which we live, and we are to be different also, not to conform, verse 14, but verse 17, to conduct ourselves with fear during the time of your exile. It is really hard. But the word exile here really helps us. Because there it is again. The word exile is going to keep coming up time and time again. This takes us back to verses 1 to 12, doesn't it, over the last two weeks. In light of this, remember who you are, says Peter. Constantly, you need to remember who you are. You're not residents, you're exiles. You're meant to feel different. The old English word here, I think, is quite helpful for exile or foreigner. It is alien. 
Some of you uh, might have that in your older translation of the Bible. It it can be an an unhelpful phrase um, nowadays, but for us as Christians, being aliens isn't actually that, that wide off the mark. We are almost like we're from another place, from another planet, from a completely different sphere of existence in every single kind of conceivable way. Living as displaced peoples in this world is, uh, that, that is very unlike us and very unlike our Father. It's like we're aliens. However, when we think of that, as much as being an alien is hard, and that's what we've looked at a lot over the past two weeks, Peter wants us to draw us to something else. We don't like being aliens, living the exilic life of holiness. However, there are times when remembering your alienness really helps drive the desire in living this pattern of holiness. And the best example of this I can think of is the Welsh. Now, I grew up in Wales, in Pembrokeshire. I I can't necessarily call myself Welsh. I don't think I have any Welsh heritage, but I certainly enjoyed uh, growing up there. And the Welsh, pretty much like you Scots, though I do think the Welsh uh, sort of are ahead of you in this matter, is that they are fiercely proud of being Welsh. Fiercely proud, like no other people group I have ever known, even more so when they are elsewhere. You can always tell a Welshman abroad more than you can tell an Englishman abroad. They are even more nationalistic. They are even more Welsh than they are in Wales. I remember chatting to a friend of mine who wasn't particularly nationalistic in any way. He was born in Wales. He went to an English university. At the end of his three years, he came back and he was drippingly Welsh really Welsh. His his Welsh um, accent was more exaggerated. He started going to language classes so that he could learn his own language that he couldn't be bothered to learn before he left. He joined all the Welsh societies. He sort of made friends with the Welsh diaspora he could find in Cambridge. He'd even brought a Welsh flag. He put it on his door. He religiously attended all rugby matches, even though he'd never been bothered about rugby before. And I asked him jokingly, goodness, what on earth happened? And he said... Well, I didn't want my identity to be so overcome by the English boyos around me that I became so much more Welsh than I'd ever been. I knew I was different, but I wasn't worried about being different. I was worried that I was going to become more like them, that I was going to start reading the Times and speaking posh and and having eggs benedict for breakfast. I wasn't up for that. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to betray my heritage, so I had to combat it. And the only way I could do that was by becoming more Welsh. I wanted to be more, he said, of who I was, surrounded by people who were pulling me to be something I wasn't. You see? It is that kind of thinking that Peter says to the Christian you need to have. You're only here temporarily. You're going to be surrounded by a nation, a people group, a land, a society, schools of thought and culture which are going to drain your distinctiveness. Don't Let it. Don't lose your spiritual identity. Don't become mixed and indistinct. Remember you are an alien and work to making yourself more so by being holy, becoming more holy, becoming more like who you are, more like God, your Father. To use the language of 1 Peter, this boy was obedient to being Welsh. He didn't conform to being English. He conducted himself in a rightful fear of losing his identity. He became more purely Welsh. And so God says the same things to us. Become obedient to Jesus. 
Don't conform to being worldly. Conduct yourself with fear as an alien and exile in a pagan world, in fear of losing your identity, but also, as we'll come to later, in a right fear of a good and holy God. And that all brings us to the bookends of this instruction to be holy, for that is still easier said than done. For the truth of the matter is, it is much harder being God's people in the world attempting to be holy than being a Welshman or woman in England. It's just true. Even when we are convinced and even proud of our ethnicity in Christ. And Peter knows that. And so this instruction comes sandwiched between two incredible motivations to help us along the way. The first motivation concerns the future. That's our second point. Point one, be holy, motivated by the future. And that brings us back to this inheritance idea that we saw last week. Then in verse 13, therefore, remembering your inheritance, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Literally, the, the, the expression here is gird up the loins of your mind, which I very much enjoy. In the um, ancient world, if you were wearing long ceremonial robes, you needed to do some work. You sort of had to hoik them up underneath you and, and wrap them around you in order that you could do what you could do without any hindrance in order to complete the task or in order to run away to safety. Or think of a, maybe a closer experience to today, a bride on her wedding day who sort of gets out of the wedding car in a massive dress and, and merely to walk from the car to the church, she sort of has to hoik everything up and, and wander on her way so she doesn't fall down and make a spectacle of herself. This is what preparing your mind means. You need to get yourself ready. That's what Peter is asking these exiles to do, mentally speaking. Prepare your minds, gird up the loins of your minds, prepare yourselves for action. Before you're able to be holy and live in this distinctive and hostile way, you have to prepare yourself. Christian living will not happen without a Christian mindset in place first. And how do you prepare your mind, says Peter? How do you get yourself ready? Well, you set your mind on the future. Setting your mind and your hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fill your thinking with not what's going on now or happening around you, but what's going to happen in the future when the Lord Jesus returns. This is a bit like going on a holiday, especially after coming out of a pandemic when you've been in lockdown. I remember saying to Jen uh, before we headed down to Pembrokeshire for our two-week holiday um, in the, the stinkingly hot Welsh sun, as it turned out, I said to her before we went, about two or three months, I, I can't wait to start preparing to go down. It's so exciting. I'm quite an excitable person. Perhaps this maybe speaks more to my, myself than anything else, but it's true. I'm really excited about going down. I was looking forward to packing, really looking forward to planning the days out when we got there, to sort of booking the tickets in advance, to getting things ready, to, to thinking about what we would take on the journey, where we'd stop, putting stuff into my suitcase. Jen gives me a bag that I'm allowed to put my own stuff in, and it's really exciting. I enjoy that. I get the enjoyment of going on holiday, the enjoyment of looking forward to the holiday, especially when you've come out of a pandemic or in the dark, cold months of, of winter. I'm going away. I know I'm going away. I can't wait to prepare for that. I'm living in anticipation of that. It, it keeps me going through winter or, or through a lockdown. I'm desperate to work at getting ready to where I'm heading. It's all booked. Just need to get ready for it. You set your hope in that better place that you are going to 
But sometimes, and this is where Peter draws us over the course of the next few weeks, we often can set our hope or our hope can be manifested in worldly things. So we set our hopes on our promotion or on our children's grades or on being better or or, or getting more or, or indeed on holidays and sun and relaxation. The place we'd rather be is still a worldly place, better gold, high salary, cleverer children, more stuff, more holidays. And Peter says, no, remember your unspoiled inheritance. Make that your place of your fantasies, your your idolatry, hanker after that. And offset that future inheritance against all the things that you were looking for on earth, the, 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 the manifestations of grace. Get that against everything that you yearn for on this planet. For example, rather than that big house which I'm putting all of my efforts into, and I'm losing sleep over, well, preach to yourself, well, I'd actually much much rather live in a heavenly mansion. (laughs) Thank you very much. As in, that's just true. I just would much rather live somewhere a lot bigger that isn't going to be taken away from me. That's that's just true. So I'm going to put my hope in that future inheritance. Or, Or rather than desperately fighting for your kids to get better grades in their hires, spending more and more money, well... I'd rather actually them being perfect forever with Jesus rather than being fairly intelligent in the world for about 75 years. I I just would prefer that. Can you see? They're just much better ambitions, aren't they? And they're more real. They're not ludicrous or to be unexpected either for Christians because, says Peter, your inheritance is already in heaven. It's already secure for you. Make that the place of your mental fantasy. And then live as people who are waiting to go there. And living this way will mean that suddenly there are things about this world that you won't care about very much because they're so temporary. It will prevent us parents, for example, from becoming tiger parents. I think the the, the term is tiger mum, isn't it? Uh, uh, That the push you're consuming 24-7 ambitious mum or dad that pushes their children to do impossible things all the time where it becomes literally your job, you work for the excellence of your kids, you spend untold fortunes on them to achieve it. I don't need to be that anymore. I don't even need to pretend to be that kind of parent anymore. You won't care that much about your kids' grades, not in the bad way. You'll want them to be godly, yes, to treat people with incredible respect, to appreciate the value of hard work, to be growing and maturing well in school, to have a godly mindset about doing the best that you can for the glory of God. That might result in excellent grades. That's wonderful. But, but neither does it negate godly encouragement when they're lazy. That's also very important. But them not getting an A star won't end you or your child because they know that they're not living for that. They don't fall down in panic under your crippling expectations as parents as they hide their C-pluses from us. You're more bothered about them being holy. And as a consequence, they are more bothered about being holy and about loving their Lord Jesus and speaking about him to their friends. You're more bothered about them being distinct. You won't really care about how big or nice your house is. It's great to have somewhere to show hospitality to others, to look after people, to to share with others. It's great to have somewhere to pass on to others. It's great to be able to appreciate God's gift of beautiful things and colors and creativity as you make it your own, to enjoy well-thought-through architecture, whatever it is. But it won't end you if you were to lose it or if you had to give it up or you couldn't afford it 
or you had to move elsewhere. It's not your real home. It's at best a tent in terms of where you're really going to end up. You don't have to have the best career, the best sex, the best children, the best retirement, the best holidays, because you're going to have the very best eternity. And so that sets us free from the foolish, ignorant, profitless rat race that we find ourselves in with those around us that are engaged in it. We don't have to conform. Set your mind on the future. Just like the the Welshman in England, my friend, thinking about his return to Wales, I'm not bothered about being English. I'm just not bothered about it, he said. I'm going to go back home in a few years. But I can enjoy my time here. Sure, it'll be tough at points. Boy, will I get the flack for being Welsh, but I can enjoy the good things that I can here, share them with others, but I'm not fussed about being English. I'm not here for very long. I'm going to go back to Wales, knowing that's where I can return to, where I'll stay where I'll truly fit in. I'll not stand out with my flag, my language, my accent, my mannerisms, my food. I'll fit in, like everyone else, being at home with family. Well, Christian, don't conform, but think about the hope that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the day that he returns when suddenly you will be home and you will be in a place where you are not unhelpfully distinct. You're you're unique, in Christ, but you're not distinct in that way. You're like everyone else, holy like God is, home with family. So be holy, be more like a person of heaven, a person of God who is holy, with whom you will reside, motivated by the future and your future inheritance, but also, thirdly, built on the past, our last point. Be holy, in other words, because of what the Lord Jesus has already done for you, Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious, imperishable blood of Christ. That's the connotation there. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith, our hope, are not in the world, but in God. The idea here, isn't it, is of Jesus' death and resurrection, which has redeemed and ransomed us. The background here is the story of Exodus. That's what we're hearing, can't we? We can hear that language. We studied that as a church last year, and you'll notice several references to the story all the way through 1 Peter, along with a lot of Genesis and Psalms in in, in Peter's writing. And this language takes us right to the heart of God saving his people out of Egypt. And it is worth looking at in just a little bit more detail as we draw to a close. Because in Exodus, we learn that when God rescued and redeemed his people, he did so by what means? By the blood of a lamb. Remember, uh, God's fury came against Pharaoh's, uh, Pharaoh in the ten plagues, uh, the last one being the very worst, the, the death of the firstborn at midnight. God wants to pass through the land of Egypt and to strike down every firstborn son. But he made a means of escape for his own people, did God. He, 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 um, if his people sacrificed a lamb, and then out of the, the blood of the lamb, if it was put on the doorposts of their houses, when the angel of death passed over his, uh, the land, he could see the blood and pass over their houses and spare the firstborn living under the blood. And so that became known as the the Passover, the Lord's Passover. And so the people of God did as they were instructed. 
They had the meal of roast lamb. They put the blood on the doorpost. God's judgment came. Every firstborn of the Egyptians died, but God's people didn't. And Pharaoh said to them, go. You are free to go. The tyrant who had oppressed them, who was ethnically cleansing God's people, suddenly admitted that he was defeated and that God's people were free. Exodus chapter 12, verse 31 is so important. Then he summoned, that is Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord, as you have said. So every Israelite family knew Now, at the Exodus, the Lord had saved them and rescued them and redeemed them, and they celebrated this with a meal annually with roast lambs. Many Jews still do that today. And so for us as Christians, when we think about the Passover, we are to focus on the very same fact, the very same reality that is in place for us that saved us. The fact that the spilt blood of that unblemished lamb was the place where we were rescued from God's judgment. It set in place the paradigm of salvation, the, the pattern of salvation. Just as in the days of Egypt, God's judgment was coming at midnight and the way to be saved was through the sacrifice of an innocent lamb. So nowadays we face God's judgment on the last day and the way that we are spared is through the blood of Jesus, the innocent lamb of God shed for us. That is exactly what we are going to be remembering now as we remember God's communion together. Peter in this gospel is unrelentingly Christological. It all ties in with Jesus, says Peter, all the way through this book, all the time. The only way you can even begin to live this life of holiness, in other words, it is knowing that Jesus saved you by his blood as the Passover sacrificial substitutionary lamb in your place. But there is so much more to it here than that. And this brings us to the heart of the entire passage in which we can miss if we're not careful. For there is more here in 1 Peter than just substitutionary sacrifice for salvation. The focus here in this book, in this particular letter, is the purpose for which God's people were rescued. Yes, they were spared God's judgment by sacrifice. It's very clear. Yes, they were saved from the horrors of slavery as we are. But Peter focuses on the fact that God's people in Exodus, therefore the exiles in Asia Minor, and therefore us today, were saved from something for something else. Namely, rescued from futility and for obedience. God had a purpose in bringing the people out of Egypt more than simply their greater comfort. It's true that God is a compassionate God, and he doesn't like to see people oppressed, and in compassion over them, he rescues them. But actually, if you remember, all the way through Exodus, there is that refrain uttered over again and again as to why he rescued them. Moses went to Pharaoh again and again, and he doesn't say, let my people go so that they might enjoy more freedom. He doesn't say, let my people go so that they may not have to be slave labor anymore. He doesn't say, let my people go so that their standards of living might improve. No, throughout the whole book of Exodus, Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may serve me and worship me. And so God sent these plagues. The Passover happened. And the upshot was Exodus 12, verse 31. Go and serve the Lord in your freedom, as you have said. The people are free, but they are now free to live in relationship with God, God's way. They are not free to live any way they like. They are free, they are able to live God's way in relationship with God. They are saved to holy, God-like living. 
So back in Exodus, they escape from Egypt, they wander through the desert. The climax of their immediate rescue is coming to Mount Sinai, isn't it? Where they meet the God who's rescued them and God tells them how they may live in order to live this holy life that they've been saved to. It's a terrifying encounter. If you remember that the, the mountain is trembling and rumbling with smoke and fire, everyone is scared out of their wits, and God gives them his law, his Ten Commandments, and says, because I am your God who rescued you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, this is now how you can and should live. No possibility, by the way, that they are to serve God in order to be redeemed and to be saved. Very important. It's not that way round. They are redeemed and brought and saved to life in order to serve God. He's rescued them, but he's rescued a people who will now serve him and fear him. And this takes us back to our passage in 1 Peter. All the same logic and language is used deliberately by Peter. Verse 18, you were ransomed. The first time we use that, see that word is in Exodus first, um, um, in, in that story. God as the person who ransoms us. Verse 19, we see the precious blood of Christ like a lamb. That's reference of the Passover. Peter is conjuring up all these Exodus ideas. But the one that we miss is the one I bookmarked for you earlier. It's found in verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your exile. That's the Sinai vocabulary, the holy fear of an almighty, holy God. The same logic of the Exodus. God saved you so that you may serve him. God rescued you out of Egypt so that you could live distinctly in Israel, in Canaan, a land not of your own. God saved you from amongst the Egyptians so that you could live as God's people differently in the world. First of all, brought to him in incredible fear. Not fear of the world, but fear of a holy God. And Peter says the same. Remember that Jesus' death for you has a purpose. That purpose goes well beyond improving your life. Jesus didn't die so that your lives could simply be happier or better. Jesus didn't even die so that we could merely escape hell, as much as that is gloriously true. Jesus died in order that we might belong to him and that we might escape the futility of a life in the world that has gone astray and that we might live as Christians in fear of an almighty God who has saved us to such a life. Conduct yourselves in a Sinai-like way, conscious of his commands as a distinct holy people. So for the Christian, being holy, therefore, is now possible. It's not that we find it in ourselves somehow to have the energy to be constantly morally better and pure all the time. Many religions try that and fail at that. But for the Christian, Jesus has already done what is needed. He has rescued and ransomed us. This purpose is to do so, is to purchase for himself a distinct, different, holy people so that our hope and faith are not in the world, as Peter ends here, but in God. So being holy is possible. Being holy is something we should earnestly desire, like the Welshman in England. But it's something in a secular culture, which is something we don't really want to do as we're mocked and scorned and slandered and hated. And so we're tempted to keep our heads down. But Peter says, no, live like the Welshman in England, live as an alien on the planet, work at your distinctiveness and your living holy. We're going to look at a lot at what that actually looks like over the course of the next few weeks. Be, be a good dad. Be a good husband to your wife. Love each other around you. Be distinct from your culture as God is distinct. And knowing by his blood that we will remember now as we eat of the Lord's Supper together that you can live this holy life who will bring you home, this God, with him to glory. Let's pray together.
Father God, thank you so very much for your goodness to us uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for these words. Thank you for this instruction for us to be holy. Thank you that it is embedded in so much of what Christ has done for us. Heavenly Father, thank you that you help us. Thank you that you saved us in order to be able to live the redeemed life. Lord, help us to see that way of living as being truly attractive and brilliant and wonderful. Help our minds to be renewed. Help us to, to gird the loins of our minds up with the knowledge that it is a better way of living, that, that we will be preparing ourselves for something that is just so much more wonderful than we could ever achieve or experience or be given here this side of eternity. Father God, we pray that very much over the course of this term that you would reorientate our hearts and our minds as we need to, as people who have been fit for God's purpose, ready for him, able to speak for him and to live holy lives as we get ready for eternity. We pray all these things, thanking you um, in the name of uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and in his blood, his death and resurrection. Amen.